of the Lakeshore Records podcast is the man who is responsible, uh, I almost want to call him a culprit, for uh, my summer anthem of this year, and it was the track Night Drive from the movie Nerve. Uh, and I have to say, Nerve is, is kind of, it's not the, the, not the normal film that would appeal to a, to a person like me, but I was completely taken by the film and taken by the film's score. So please welcome to the Lakeshore Records podcast now, Rob Simonson. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. No, no problem at all. Um, that track has seriously not left my iPhone stereo headphones for, you know, going on for like two months now. It's, uh, it's an absolutely incredibly infectious song. Wow. Well, that is high praise. Thank you very much. I'm glad you're enjoying it. No, I'm very, 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 very much enjoying it. It's, it's one of the things, actually, about the Nerve score. It kind of took me by surprise because I wasn't expecting it to be the way it was. You know, once, once I'd, uh, I hadn't seen the film before I heard the score. So I heard the score, and because I didn't really have any kind of frame of reference, the first time I played it, I thought, oh, you know, that's great. And then, you know, I'd listened to it a couple of more times, and the more and more I listened to it, I just kept thinking over and over to myself, this is, this is really good. Like, now I have to see the film to know how it kind of fits in with what's happening on the screen. Uh, and then I saw the film, and as I say, it's kind of, it, it's a film that's not, say, uh, aimed or marketed at someone of my age but uh thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it and the way that the score works with the um the uh the other songs in the film uh was fantastic absolutely you know it was just kind of like one seamless uh one seamless musical adventure was that kind of was that your idea going into crafting the score um, well, first of all, thank you so much for the kind words. Um, it, it, it was, I mean, I knew that we were going to be using a lot of pop songs and the songs that they were choosing were moving pretty fast and, and furiously, but the directors have a real youthful spirit and they're very clever guys. And so I knew that there was going to be they, they, they'd be attracted to songs that were kind of like that. I mm. think fast and fun and clever. Um, but before any of the songs were picked, we talked about kind of taking some of this synthwave stuff that, that has been coming around over the last several years and, and really trying to go in that direction, I think, in a deeper way than a lot of other scores have gone. Um, and for me, it wasn't just about um, being purely synthwave or, or doing anything that was pure. I think it was just about taking some of those elements and picking a direction and kind of taking it, uh, hopefully, into a, a, a newer place. Um, and I, it just felt like since we were gonna be in that world, everything was play along really well with the song because most of the songs have you know they kind of have a synthy nature to them so yeah i mean from the uh, the opening song in the film uh, i think it's bass bass ng or something like um mm -hmm. uh, can't get enough of you it's like that song is so ridiculously infectious and just as soon as you hear it you're just like this is such a happy song and you know you find yourself humming it and then 
I found myself humming that and then I found myself humming parts of the score thinking was that part of that song or is that part of the score and it's just it's it's a perfect when you said about you know kind of incorporating some of the synth wave that, that is very kind of in right now it, it has created this wonderful kind of like this seamless playlist uh, kind of an aspect to the film which I really uh, which I really really enjoyed um, I, I, can't, I kind of went into this film thinking this is not going to be for me and was completely blown away and surprised by it. So uh, on that level, everything completely worked. Did you have any idea or have any say so in the pop songs that were picked for the film? Um, they, we would listen to stuff. Um, I would. Yeah, we, we spent a lot of time. It, it's very seamless with those guys. They, they think about the music very holistically and. Um, there, we've been friends for years. So I was brought on to Nerve pretty much as soon as it was green-lighted. Um, and we started making a Spotify playlist, and I would add to it, and they would add to it. And when we would be looking at pieces of score, there were some sections of the film where we didn't know if it was going to be score or song. So I'd write a score piece and then we'd play it and then they'd say, oh, well, let's throw up this song and then we'd try it. And there's a lot of that kind of play. And they they definitely um, asked for my opinion and, and was open to my opinion. And we, we strive to make a, a, you know, a cohesive film. And there were a lot of sections where things transitioned into songs or transitioned out of songs and. Randy Poster, who's the music supervisor, had some really great ideas about using songs in a way where it kind of grouped a number of scenes together and the song would play through a number of different scenes. I think early on there were different songs that would play with these different scenes and it felt a bit choppy. So what we started doing was finding ways of having these songs maybe they'd play over a couple scenes and then it'd go away and then that same song will go back. And it's a little bit of a, I think it's something that John Hughes did a lot where you just get, you stamp a certain vibe on a number, on a group of scenes. And it's something that really starts to feel cohesive because you're brought, the music kind of brings you back to that mood that you were in before. You get a little bit of information and then you think, ah, okay, I'm still just, getting this information, I'm getting to know these characters and we're moving on and this is this piece of the story. So he was pretty brilliant in picking those moments and having the songs stretch out for longer. I think some of those, you know, it, it, it got rid of other song placements and even in some instances got rid of some score cues, but ultimately it made the film a lot better. And we were just careful about trying to not be... It was jam-packed full of music, but but we were all really working towards making it feel really seamless. So there were some cues where I would switch. I had it, it was a little bit of a moving target in terms of the key because we were going to a song and then that would change and then I'd have to change the key. And it was just kind of a living ecosystem that we were handling until it was uh, printed, really. It sounds fascinating. It, it really does. Did were any of the songs that were chosen for the film were they were any of those an influence on the score pieces you were writing or had you already written uh, a majority of what was actually going to be in the film yeah nothing I, I can't say that anything was in early enough to really be an influence hmm. 
Um, I wrote a bunch of tracks while they were shooting. Um, and I, I went to New York and hung out on set for a while. And I was just writing stuff as they were shooting. Right. And then once they got into the edit, you know, they, they really quickly put music on both score and, um, and songs, but I had generated a bit of a catalog for them at that point. So the music editor was really building out the score temp from my score cues. They're really, there was maybe a couple things that were pulled from other scores of mine and maybe oh. one piece of score that was not from me at all in terms of temping. But I would say 95% of it was me and probably about 85% of it was stuff that I had just written for the film already. It's an interesting thing. Um, hearing our different composers work depending on where they're brought into the actual project. But I mean, this is, is this the second time you've worked with Henry uh, and Ariel? Yeah. So, and, and we've done smaller stuff. Um, before we did a feature, we did a, we did some short film projects, uh, which were great. And then we did viral and then, it was interesting. We we weren't even done with viral, and we started working on Nerve. <laughs> and uh, and then in the middle of Nerve, we finished viral. And um, but most of the work had been done. I think it was just you know they had some re-edits that they were doing and kind of finishing out things. But it was uh, it was the second feature that we had done together. And you know we they're they're really the, the nice thing about working with them besides the fact they have great music taste and they're funny guys um, and, and good friends is that they're really trusting and they're really open. So it's one of, it's one of those situations where they bring me on early and they, they kind of look to me as the source of a lot of uh, the sound and it's, it's really nice because you don't always get that opportunity. Films have different histories and different pathways. And, yeah. you know, you never know what you're kind of stepping into. Sometimes there's a great temp and everyone loves the temp, but yet they don't want the temp. And then you got to kind of figure out what it is that is making people feel a certain way and figure out another way to make people feel that way. You know, that can be a really tricky thing. And with these guys, um, it's a very kind of simple process. And I think a lot of their notes are like very simple. Like, yeah, we didn't, we don't really like that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, okay. And then if, you know, and they give me enough information to try something new. Right. But rarely is it, I mean, I think both with Viral and Nerve, I wrote I kind of wrote a little suite and, and gave them a, a catalog of stuff to attempt the film with. So we never got into that situation where they fell in love with a piece of music that wasn't created for their film. And I really love working that way because it just, it means that you never run up against that thing of, you know, how am I going to make people feel exactly the way that this other track makes them feel? Yeah, yeah when they point out that, oh, you see the way the oboe comes in there and it moves up that half step and it holds for that long. It's like, well, you know, at a certain point, I always encourage people to just license those pieces because, um, but it, it's, uh, 
and it just happens different every time, and it happens for different reasons too. But these guys are are really great to work with in that they, um, you know, they they I think they hire people that they trust and really encourage them to to stand in their own opinions and contribute to the film. I think they they do that with all the department heads, and I think they it pays off. I mean, having having seen Nerve, I have to say it completely does. Um, big big fan of the, it. Like I said before, it, I mean, it's it completely changed my opinion because I was thinking it was going to be one thing, and it turned out to be something completely different. And I, I found myself really, you know, kind of getting involved in the story. And part of that has always been with any film I'm watching is I'm kind of I'm listening out for the score, but I'm not really listening out for the score at the same time. I want to see if it kind of. Um, I've always been a believer that if a score is working it's because it, you're not hearing it but you're feeling it kind of a thing it's it's about you know it's the way it's conveying emotions and and that kind of thing so in that in that respect it completely totally works so uh, i hope you guys work together a ton more uh in the future ah well thanks i i hope so as well they've they've got a lot of fun ideas cooking and um and they're always a good hang actually i think henry is coming over in a little bit and we're going to do some swimming so Oh, cool. <laughs> very, very fun. Very fun. Now, now that the film is out, uh, I assume you've had a chance to see everything put together. Uh, were you a fan of the finished product? Yeah, I was. And there were some things that, you know, with every film, even though I know the post-production process so well, there's still just impacts that I don't get even knowing what those impacts are going to be until everything is put together. And yeah, sitting back and, and when we went to the premiere in New York and watching it all go down, I had the same experience. I was, I was sucked in and, and moved and thrilled and I knew every frame. And uh, it's just something about the color timing and the mix and the final, you know, all the final elements going in and, and just seeing it with the perspective of an audience that hadn't seen it before. It's different things come up and and it was great i i think we're all we're all really happy and and uh, that night you know i remember henry saying something <laughs> something about how it's like mathematically impossible that it's as good as it is <laughs> think about something to that degree and he just said you know everyone really brought it he said the the great performances the cinematography the music, the the songs, you know, the all of it um, just really kind of leads it to to a place that the sum is greater than you know the parts, and and I think we're all yeah we're all really happy with it. That's awesome. That's uh, that's so cool. And uh, for anyone that's listening to this and hasn't had a chance to check out the Nerve score yet, I, I urge you to do so. I, I urge you to do so uh, as quickly as you possibly can. But if we can, Rob, I'd like to um, if we just talk about your background a little bit. When did you first actually discover uh, film music? Um, oh, man. I, I think film music was around in my home as early as I can remember. My first memory in life <clears throat> was being in a drive-in movie theater and seeing Star Wars. And the moment that Luke Skywalker turns on the lightsaber, you know, when you go the old drive-in movie theaters, everyone has their little speaker and it 
it's, you know, a, a little six inch, six inch speaker and you roll down your window and it just kind of pipes it into your car. But that sound, my, I did like, I, and just seeing that it was this glowing blue sword, I just, you know, I mean, I don't know how old I was. I think I was maybe four or something. And, and I just was completely entranced. And I think my dad must have bought the soundtrack. So I just remember growing up with, with that music around and hearing the music of Vangelis. We had the Chariots of Fire soundtrack, and I used to put that on and listen to it over and over. And that was one of the first things that I sat down and picked out at the piano and, and um, just figured it out by ear. And I'd play that a lot, and we had pianos around. So it was... It, it just was kind of part of my upbringing that I was hearing movie music and then playing it on the piano. Um, <clears throat> John Barry stuff, you know, James Bond, uh, just they, they were in Superman. I mean, there were just a lot of movies, those eighties movies that were so popular. They were just in my consciousness. And so I remember getting those records. And when I was, eight years old, seven years old, nine or something. I remember having a record player and I had the Superman album. <clears throat> and I think I had another, it was a soundtrack compilation record. And so that stuff was just kind of part of my musical upbringing. Um, and it wasn't really until college and a friend of mine asked me to play piano on a score that he was doing for another film's for another friend's student film and i played it and it just yeah i mean movie music had always been there but it wasn't until that moment that i realized that film scoring was a career um and it just because i did I, I don't know i just hadn't really thought about it i i just assumed that there's these composers and they do all this other composery stuff and they get hired to do film. I think that was the first time that I thought, Oh, right. Uh, this, this is, this is possible for me. And I, I think I was 18, which I think is fairly late to the game. Um, but I just don't think that I really had any exposure or knowledge or understanding about how that side of, of music production for Hollywood worked. And, um, <clears throat> and then after that, uh, I made a, a film with my friends that uh, the same group of friends, we made another film and, and from the early kind of, uh, conceptions and inceptions of that story, I said to my friend who directed, I said, yeah, I'll do the score. He said, yeah, you'll do the score. And at that time it was, we were just making a short. So I was going to make five to 15 minutes or, you know, something, some small amount of music that short ended up being an hour and 40 minute feature. <laughs> <laughs> so not that short then <laughs> not that short and it was about a knight who spends most of the film wandering around through the forest and the desert and uh he's kind of trying to put his put his life back together and, and there's not really that much dialogue so over the course of that process i think i wrote an hour and a half worth of orchestral music and i was also a um a student at U of O at that time and studying jazz piano and, um, or at least I, I had right before I started scoring this. And 
So I asked one of my teachers to help me orchestrate it, and you know, we got together and and uh, you know, all of it was a crash course in in film composing, and and it was um, it was a really great experience. And the film ended up going to Seattle International Film Festival, where I met Michael Dana, who was a guest speaker of the festival. So I went to hear him speak and. And then the programmer who brought him and also was a fan of the score that I had did for this film was standing right there and she said, okay, Michael, it's time to go to lunch. And she looked at me, she said, Rob, do you want to go to lunch? And so all of a sudden I found myself with Hummy Man and Michael Dana and Ian Hirons from Milan Records and all these people. And I had just written this score in my bedroom up in a small home in Corvallis, Oregon. And, uh, and and here it was, and it just seemed like, oh, these these are working professionals, and these are these are Hollywood people, and they're they're they're, they're doing it. So Michael and I became pretty fast friends um, during that festival, and then a year later, we both moved to LA, and I started assisting him, and I was his assistant for five years, and he let me work up the ranks underneath him, and in many ways, I consider him kind of a my musical father at least in terms of, of my film scoring career. For yeah, sure. yeah, that's fantastic. That's a fantastic story. Had you, previous to film scoring, had the had the kind of the plan always been a career in music? Yeah, I mean, I knew that I wanted to, it's funny that it didn't dawn on me to be a film composer because I was always making movies with my friends and I was always making music on my own or with other friends. And... I was in bands, but I think I felt most comfortable and I, and I got the most enjoyment out of just creating little pieces on, on my own little sequencers. And my dad got me a, an old Mac SE when I was about 13. And, uh, and I had had little keyboards that had onboard sequencers, but this was, you know, much more powerful. And I remember it was, it was Vision or Performer or something like that. And an old black and white tiny little screen, but I could I could program MIDI, and that's really when I got into sequencing and and felt like I could create my own little tracks. So that's really where it's where I started with that. But it took another five years before it dawned on me to like, oh, I can make I can make music for movies, and all of my intentions for storytelling can go into that, and all my intentions for whatever I wanted to express as a composer or as a musician could also be funneled into whatever scores that I could create. So it just seemed like this obvious thing that was always there. I just think I didn't put my finger on it until I was. <laughs> who were, uh, who were some of your um, kind of musical influences? I mean, you mentioned, I think kind of in a, in a, in an almost, um, parallel kind of way i i came i came from kind of like a musical family in the sense that we always had records around but they weren't necessarily film score fans but we also had star wars chariots of fire um probably superman as well so i grew up listening to film music from john williams um you know jerry goldsmith was a big one for me growing up and uh the same as um danny elfman and tim uh sorry danny elfman and john carpenter who were kind of the guys that were influencing you once you had decided you know this is this is it for me i want to do film well uh all of the names that you mentioned for sure um 
And I remember my grandfather was a big Henry Mancini fan. So I got a little bit of that. And there was a bit of um, my, my mom sang around the house and she loved Barbra Streisand. Oh, right. And, and show tunes and was always listening to Broadway stuff, um, which I never, I never really got into, but that has a connection to jazz. And I think my dad was also into jazz. And I, I really, the first tape that I ever bought was Miles Davis kind of blue. Wow. But I can't take credit because I had no idea what it was. It was, in, <laughs> it was in the cheap tape bin at the, at the music store at a mall. And I just remember seeing, it was a photo of Miles Davis and he was playing trumpet and there was just some blue light on him. I, you know, it, it was one of the alternate covers that was printed up for a cassette release. I mean, this, this must have been in the, gosh, late 80s, mid, mid late 80s, 86 or 87 or something. I remember we, I, I think it was, we had gone to the mall to see Top Gun and we stopped by a Sam Goody or something like that. And I just flipped through tapes and I remember seeing that tape and the picture looked so cool. He looked so cool to me with that blue light. And he had this like scarf on and he was playing the trumpet with a mute and it was called Kind of Blue. And I looked at the the track listing and it just had this mysteriousness to it and and I bought it and it wasn't until, you know, 10 years later that I think I really kind of unlocked the significance of that album. But, you know, growing up, it was, um, it was a mixture of, of, of jazz and, and film scores and some classical. I remember my father, you know, would play Beethoven and whatnot around the house. Um, and also, do you know a band called Mannheim Steamroller? Yeah. Yeah, I've heard of them. I'm not. I'm not super familiar, but I've heard of the name. Yeah, I mean, they they I think are considered kind of new age slash fusion. They were actually doing synthesizers and orchestra um, back in like the '70s and the '80s, and I they were family friends. The keyboard player Jackson Berkey sang in choirs with uh, my parents and my parents actually met singing in the choir in, in college wow. that's incredible yeah so uh they were family friends and i think that's how we we ended up with all of their albums and we played those albums all the time growing up and i think that actually that they were an influence hearing a drum kit and electronic drums with orchestras and with synthesizers and you know things doing arpeggios and and it, it was really, it, somehow it's really in there. Um, and uh, and that, was, that was kind of the world. I mean, and then there was Tomita. Do you know Tomita? Again, I know the name, but I'm not, not really familiar with the work. So Tomita made, he, he would play classical pieces solely on synthesizers. So kind of a Wendy Carlos. Right, right. Cool. And that was... You know, there was Tomita, the planet. So he did Hulse's The Planets, but every part was performed on synthesizer. So it was arranged for all these different synthesizers. And it was really kind of odd and cold to me, but also really fascinating. And I remember playing that cassette a lot when I was young as well. And I think that when I kind of took notice of more film score stuff, I, I mean, I think in high school, 
Braveheart and Last of the Mohicans were, were huge film scores for my friends and I. And we would go on road trips and we would be playing those soundtracks. Right. You know, it just, you know, those, in our mind's eye, we were these adventurers heading out onto, you know, some some great uh, some great adventure. And, and we played those a lot. Uh, those are good scores for that kind of, they re- they're, they're very rousing. You know, they really kind of, you know, I'm going to do something. That's what those kind of scores are to me. They're music that I put on when I want to, you know, I've got to do something. Yeah, they're stirring. Yeah. So, I, I, yeah, I remember in high school, I, I had, um, I went to a very alternative high school and our, we didn't have a normal PE program. We had a martial arts teacher who taught a bunch of different kinds of uh, just physical training classes. And, and one of them that I took was Qigong, which is kind of a Chinese version. Of, it's, it's a little bit like Tai Chi, I think. So it's a lot of slow movements and you're flowing. You're doing these kind of slow flowing movements. And he put on the Braveheart score before I had seen the movie. And they're doing you know, the, the sunlight was streaming in and you, you, it's in a quiet room and I'm doing these kind of flowing movements and this music came on and it, it brought me to tears. And I just remember my whole body was vibrating. And so I bought that album and I, you know, I really wore that out. I listened to, the, <clears throat> to that a lot. Um, so James Horner and Sneakers by James Horner is another one of my favorites. Um, and the land before time. So I was definitely into James Horner a lot growing up as well. And then Ennio Morricone, um, uh, also somebody that I kind of discovered in in high school. And then I think right out of high school, I think the big ones for me, the biggest one I think was was Steve Reich. Oh, okay. Um, and he, I remember a friend. He was so excited and. He he was like, come over, you know, you got to hear this. And he put this record on and it was music for 18 musicians. And my brain couldn't comprehend what I was listening to. I mean, <laughs> I was listening to film scores like the ones that I just mentioned. I was listening to Aphex Twin and Bjork. And then he played music for 18 musicians. And I couldn't tell if it was electronic. It sounded like something that should have been electronic. Hmm. But then I realized after a couple minutes that it was all live and it just kind of blew my mind open. So I kind of really dug into to his work and kind of went deeper into minimalists. I mean, I remember hearing Philip Glass when I was really young and, and loving it and Koyana Scotsi and whatnot. Um, but I think that was in college when I got exposed to Steve Reich that I really got heavier into Terry Riley and Arvo Part and a lot of those guys in that minimalist school. Fantastic. I mean, these are, they're not names that I normally hear from the composers I speak to. Um, it's, it's, um, it's refreshing to hear someone mention Steve Reich, to be honest with you. Um, it, it's, not, it's not a name that I think gets enough recognition, uh, genuinely, uh, from the soundtrack community at large. Or fans of, you know, kind of minimal... Um, electronic um, or instrumental music. Yeah, you know, I agree. Um, I agree. And it's so interesting because one of the most popular um, techniques in modern film scoring 
is using very minimalist patterns on strings, um, you know, or winds or with synthesizers. And it's interesting because it pulls from that world of minimalist composers, but yet there's a certain focus that, for instance, Steve Reich has in a lot of his, his work, um, especially with music for 18 musicians, where it's just these cyclical patterns. And a lot of it is based on, off of African rhythms, where you have, um, it's a different number of beats to complete its rhythmic cycle, and you put different layers of those on top of each other. So the sync points of what these different patterns are playing link up at different points. So it's a, one instrument could be playing the same pattern, they play that for two minutes, but if you have another instrument playing that same, playing their pattern, but it's two beats longer or three beats longer or five beats longer, then the sync points are constantly different. So if you just have those two things playing for five minutes, the music constantly is shifting. Um, and it's, it's fascinating. And it's, a, it's you know, there's, there's books on this stuff. And, and these guys back in the 60s, Philip Glass and Steve Reich and a lot of the Terry Riley, they were all kind of hip to that stuff. And they were reading these books about African rhythms and polyrhythms. And they were figuring out ways to implement that in music. And there's an interview with Steve Reich where he was saying that he felt like the drone for a bass in this kind of music um, was silly. I mean, I think that was his word. I, f I forget what, what he said, but he just couldn't do that. So for him, it was about... Uh, you know, using a pulsing bass and a bass that was moving so that you could have these minimalist patterns going on. But if the bass line moves, then it reharmonizes the chords that you're hearing and the tonalities and it brings things out in a different way. And it's just, for me, there's, there's very simple things from that world that are borrowed in a lot of common kind of film score approaches yeah. for, you know, the last 10 years. Um, specifically things like Batman or Born Identity. Um, I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on, and I think everyone does it because it's a sound that's, that's really great. But it was, a, it was a certain specific focus that Steve Reich had and, and in making certain choices that's just so brilliant. And I don't know that I've heard someone approach a score with that like basically do a music for 18 musicians as a score um, that, you know, those specific kind of ideas. But I think at the end of the day, it is just the specificity of that stuff that I feel like there is a, a whole world to be explored. And yet we, most of us are just kind of falling short and just saying, Oh, well, we're going to have, here's this string ostinato and then we're going to have big bass and brass play these low chords over this ostinato and there you go. I think that's like 80% of most modern action film scores these days. Mm. But Do you keep up with modern um, film scores, modern composers? Modern composers more than um, film scores. I don't listen to many film scores these days. Um, I'm, <clears throat> I listen to... Uh, to a lot of electronic music and I listen to a lot of new classical music. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm very, I'm very into that world. Um, there's a whole world that has been emerging over the last, um, you know, 
10 years really of kind of this neo it's you know being termed neoclassical and uh it's new kind of classical works it's, it's works for mostly acoustic instruments oh, i shouldn't say mostly but for acoustic instruments along with some electronics and i actually started a concert series with six other composers uh friends of mine um composer friends of mine and we uh we write new works for a specific ensemble that's different each show and then we perform these pieces in a one night event um and we have guest artists each time and some of those guest artists are film composer people some of them are purely electronic artists that have never written for a live instrument in their career but they have amazing musical voices and so we we the whole intention is to is to kind of be at this cross section of electronics and classical music and explore that and um it's been pretty successful we've all really gotten a lot out of it and michael dana came we just had a show a few weeks ago uh, at the ace hotel in downtown la which is a 600 seat venue yeah i was about to ask because this is this is the echo society you're talking about isn't it yeah yeah, because I mean, there's a there's a couple of people you've worked with. I'm I'm a big Haxon Cloak fan, and oh, also cool. uh, Chelsea Wolf, who I know that you've uh, that you've worked with. And it was kind of reading about Echo Society. The the kind of the concept was very intriguing and kind of very refreshing at the same time. So I mean, how how did that come about? You know, from like the inception of. Um, well, we we all went to a show. And it was a show that, that blended electronics and um, with live, live musicians. And we, we all, it was funny. I didn't really know a lot of those guys very well, but I had somewhat recently met them. And I sent out an email and I, <clears throat> I just sent it out to this group of guys who I felt like we all have something in common. Um, we all have an interest in electronic music and orchestral music. And some people were, you know, one guy, uh, Daru was a composer and a sound designer on Nickelodeon animated shows, but, but also released albums as Daru who, you know, he's kind of in, in a, in a very, you know, solidly electronic kind of experimental genre in that. And he's a really interesting guy. And then there was Nathan Johnson, who is an artist, you know, I think first and a creator first and has also scored a lot of film scores. And I remember Brick and like loved the score to Brick. And everyone had kind of an interesting artistic personality. And so I said, hey, let's go check out this show. So we did. And then we just started talking afterwards and we were all connecting and and we got excited about the idea of doing our own show and you know i think that we were thinking very low stakes very kind of just to do it kind of thing and um so i just said yeah let's do it and then um nathan lived next to this venue and he said hey i think there's this interesting venue next door to my house so we went and checked it out and that ended up being the, the venue that we did our first two shows at. 
and uh, there's a place called Max Senate Studios in LA. And I think once we saw that space, we all got excited because it was in our neighborhood, it was affordable, and it wasn't a music venue. It was it was an interesting space, and it wasn't a space that any of us had ever been to or even heard of. Right. And it's this old movie studio. It was a silent movie studio, one of the first in L.A. And it actually had the roof um, opens up because they used to shoot with sunlight. And the sets would all be on wheels so that as they were shooting throughout the day and the sun was moving, they would move the sets so the shadows stayed in the same direction. Wow, that's fantastic. And so there's a lot of cool old stuff from from it being a movie set still there. It's like a historic landmark. And this young guy named Jesse Rogue, um, or Rogue, he took the place over and really wanted to make it into a, a unique event space. So we met with him and it seemed like we could work it out. And then we just said, okay, let's, let's do it here. And then we all, you know, we figured out what the ensemble was and we wrote pieces for that. And we just invited our friends and sent out some emails and, you know, we, we packed the house. It was like 300 seats and we sold out. And then we said, all right, that was great. But maybe everyone was just coming because they're our friends. Let's do it again. Make sure that, you know, we, we can do it again. <laughs> so we did it again and we sold out again. And then we did another show. We decided we needed a bigger venue. So we went to a 500 seat venue and we sold that out. And then we went bigger to a 700 seat venue and we sold that out. And then we just did the ACE, which was 1600 and sold that out. And you know, the, the, the idea to move it around wasn't because we wanted to put more seats in. I think part of what we want to do is explore new and interesting spaces and kind of transform the space or transform the experience of that space. Um, and, and kind of try to, you know, just explore what's possible in terms of the live concert going experience, especially for classical music. And so we do a light show, um, you know, for instance, Chelsea Wolf, she sang on her piece. We also have this great composer, Ted Hearn, who sings. Nathan Johnson has a band project with his wife called Faux Fix, which is a really cool kind of um, electronic uh, project and his wife Katie Chastain has an amazing voice so she often he they'll, they'll write a piece together and she sings and performs but largely it's instrumental and and it's there's an immersive light show that we that we do with it and there's some um, there's some digital uh, uh, projections that we do that like projection mapping kind of stuff onto the space and you know, it's really, I think we're just, we're really excited about just doing what excites us. And I think we all get excited by having a visual element to to the music. And so anyway, I, I was going to mention it, it was really, really flattering because coming back to your question about listening to film scores and composers, Michael Dana said something really flattering, which was that he said, if somebody asked me what was the cutting edge of film scores, I would tell them to go see an Echo Society show. Wow. And yeah, I'm not saying that. I'm <laughs> repeating a very comment. You know, I, that, that wouldn't come out of my mouth. But, you know, I think that it's just there's something when you get people who 
are film composers and you just have them write just for writing's sake. And, you know, cause there's, there's a lot of freedom in that because you, you're not beholden to picture. You don't have to worry about dialogue. You can just write whatever you want. So I don't think that he's, I, I wouldn't take that compliment personally. I would just say that, you know, it's important to free ourselves up and be connected to music that's created just for music's sake. And I think whether you're listening to that or creating that, I think that is, I think really that's what's pushing film music forward right now. And that shows up in directors hiring artists from the artist world to score their films. And I mean, you know, there's her score scored by Arcade Fire and Owen Pallet. There's, uh, you know, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross mm-hmm. and all the work that they're doing. Um, M83 doing Oblivion with Joe Trapanese. I mean, it, it, there and Daft Punk doing Tron. I mean, it's, you know, there's a lot of directors that get really excited by music that's just created for music's yeah. sake. And I think that kind of infiltrating into the film score world, infiltrating is maybe a negative word, but that being um, brought in, I think is really expanding the horizons of of film score. And I think it's a really healthy thing. No, I completely, I completely, completely agree with you. Some of my favorite scores over the last uh, handful of years, It Follows by Disaster Piece, a guy primarily known for video games, or um, the score for Bone Tomahawk that was composed by the director and his friend who happens to be a music professor. You know, they're not not kind of, not the norm. And it, it kind of, it makes me really enthusiastic and really happy about the future of film, film sorry. It makes me really enthusiastic about the future of film music. You know, I've been a film music lover most of my life, and uh, I'm sure that will never go away. But if it can become more interesting and draw me in more and adapt and change uh, over the, you know, going into the future. I mean, that's fantastic. I have to say that I, I don't get to Los Angeles too much, but seeing an Echo Society show is now high on the top of my list of things that I need to see uh, <laughs> before I shuffle off this mortal coil. <laughs> well, I, I, I certainly hope that, uh, that you get to see it. And, you know, who knows, we might, we might end up, um, you know, coming across the pond and, uh, and, and doing a show over there. I know that that's something that we've talked about a lot and, um, you know, we'll, we'll see what the future brings. But at this point, there is a lot of um, there's a lot of support and a lot of interest and excitement. I think about what we're doing, so I think it's gonna it's gonna continue to grow and develop, and we'll see what happens. Excellent stuff. Listen, Rob, thank you so much for giving up so much of your time today. It's uh, it's been a genuine thrill talking to you, and a genuine pleasure to. Uh, kind of just chat to someone who loves this stuff as much as i do it's um it's it's not something i always get so thank you very much for taking the time absolutely it's my pleasure thanks for asking me the score for nerve by rob simonson is available now from lakeshore records on cd and digitally